This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. You have no obligation to listen to what follows. Listening to Philosophy Bites is not a duty. It's pure, unadulterated pleasure. But we all do have some duties. We might have a duty to look after a sick parent. Perhaps we have certain duties to our fellow citizens. Perhaps people in particular roles, doctors, lawyers and so on, have duties to their patients or clients. Duties can feel like a burden. They can weigh upon us. But David Owens, of King's College London, thinks they should be welcomed. David Owens, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thanks, it's great to be here. The topic we're going to focus on is duty. What is a duty? Well, when I have a duty to do something, like feed my children or something like that, that seems to have two connotations. One is if I don't do it, people can blame me for doing that. And also if I look like I'm not going to do it, they can demand that I do it. Putting it like that makes duty feel like a bit of a burden or a bond you're under. Philosophically, what justification is there for people having obligations, for having duties? Well, philosophers have thought about that rather a lot, and they've come up with two kinds of justification, both of which are based on the idea that obligation is a bit of a burden which needs to be justified. The first kind of justification depends on the idea that you're obliged to do something because of the intrinsic goodness or badness of the act. Right? So keeping your children alive, you ought to feed your children in order to keep them alive, and that's a good thing to do in itself, and that's why you're obliged to do it or not hitting you over the head with a brick. I'm obliged not to do that because of the badness of killing you. So that's one story philosophers have told about how to justify obligation. So what's the second? The second is applies to cases like this. We have an obligation in the UK to drive on the left-hand side of the road rather than the right-hand side of the road. Now, that's not because any of us think it's actually intrinsically better to drive on the left-hand side of the road rather than the right-hand side of the road. It's because we need some rule about this in order not to have lots of traffic accidents. So what happens is a certain social organisation, in this case the state, creates this rule and thereby imposes an obligation on us. And the reason we should take that obligation seriously is because it has good consequences if we all take it seriously. We don't have traffic accidents. So that's a different kind of justification for the imposition of an obligation. In the second case, we're talking about outcomes. In the first case, we're saying there's something intrinsically in the act itself, which put us under an obligation to fulfil the duty there. Now, which approach do you favour of these two? Well, I think both of those approaches have their place. But I think the problem is that they don't cover all the ground. Hume distinguished those two approaches. He distinguished natural obligations from artificial obligations, like natural one being feeding your kids, the artificial one being driving on the left-hand side of the road. And he thought you could accommodate all obligations in one way or the other. They were either natural or artificial. But I think you can't do that. There are certain kinds of obligations where you have to have the idea that the obligation is good for its own sake in order to make sense of what's going on. So let's get that straight. You're saying it's a false dichotomy to say that all obligations are either natural obligations or artificial obligations and there's a third category that's right that's what i think a good way to see that is to think about a relationship like friendship now most people think that friendship is a good thing 
part of that is to do with the good consequences of having friends. It's the help and support and the advice you get from your friends. But that can't be the whole story because you can get help, support and advice from lots of people by paying them, for instance, or perhaps from the state through the social security system. People want that sort of thing from their friends out of friendship. So they're clearly looking for something else in friendship and they think friendship is in itself a good thing, that having friends makes your life go better. Well, what is it that they're looking for? Well, one thing about friendship is when you have a friend, you have bonds of loyalty to your friend, that it's a point of loyalty to help them out when they need to move house or to offer them advice when they need advice. And you'd be wronging them if you didn't do that. And that's one thing many people value about friendship, that reciprocal bond of loyalty. So how is that not captured by the idea of a a natural bond of friendship? The idea of a natural bond of friendship would be the idea that just the good nature of the act of helping someone move house justifies the obligation of friendship to help them move house. Now, it's certainly true that the fact that it's a good thing to do to someone to help them out makes some sense of having an obligation. But there are many good things we could do which we're not obliged to do. When it comes to most people, I have no obligation to help them move house. But somehow I have this special connection with this guy, which means perhaps I have to abandon my family for a Sunday afternoon and go and inconveniently help him move house. So we've got to have a further story about why I should be bound to do that, which is not just about the fact it's a nice thing to do. Couldn't I just explain this as an artificial duty in the sense that I've become friends with somebody and implicitly I've taken on all these obligations they're artificial in the same sense of driving on the left or the right I mean it could have been I've made friends with somebody else but I've just got this sort of social expectation set up because of the kind of culture I live in and these are the artificial obligations I've put myself under by becoming friends with someone. Good I think there's some truth in that I think friendship is a conventional thing I'm a friends with youths, let's say, because we've got into the habit of seeing each other and uh, giving each other birthday presents and phone calls and so on. And this is a conventional thing. And the general character of friendship is conventional as well. That's true. But I think it's rather different from the case of driving on the left-hand side of the road. Because there, when we're thinking about driving on the left-hand side of the road, it's just about getting a certain effect ensuring that everyone can go safely along the road. And it doesn't really matter how we get that effect, right? Whereas in the case of friendship, it's not just about arranging for people to be able to move house some way or other. We could do that in various ways. But the idea is there's something specially good about doing it by making these connections between people, including these bonds of loyalty, that that has a value in itself over and above the help and support it organises. So I can see how that might work for friendship, but is that the only relationship it works for? No, I think this applies to a whole series of social relationships. So take being someone's neighbour. And some people think neighbours are just people who live beside you. But other people think that's quite a, a rich relationship that involves, for instance, the obligation to listen to their troubles over the garden fence, which may be rather inconvenient and even a bit irritating. But you're still obliged to do it if you're a good neighbour and you'll be blamed if you don't. And I think in order to explain how that works, you need the idea that this is actually a valuable kind of social bond. A classic example of putting myself under obligation to somebody Mm. is a promise. Mm. How would you characterise promising? Okay, well, this also is something philosophers have thought a lot about, especially since Hume, who decided this was actually a very mysterious thing, promising. Because as you say, if I promise to be at the bus stop at four o'clock, then I'm obliged to be there. But before I said that, I might have had absolutely no reason to be there. And even after I've said it, there might be 
little point in my being there that might do little good, but still there is this point that I keep my promise to you. So it looks as if promising binds you to performance and binds you to performance just because you've said some words. And Hume thought that was very mysterious. How did that work? So what justification is there philosophically for keeping your promises? Well, philosophers have generally given two kinds of answers to that question. The first kind of answer appeals to the idea that the person you gave the promise to will have their expectations disappointed. They expected you to do it. So they're going to be harmed in that way. They might have relied on your doing it, for instance. That's to treat promise your obligation as what Hume would call a natural obligation. Now, I think there's a problem with that, which is that although many promisees do expect the promise to be kept, some don't. They may have forgotten the promise. They may have not trust you very much and doubt you're going to do it. Still, most people would think you're obliged to do it if you promise, and there's no particular reason not to. So that account doesn't work very well. So that's one justification out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> What's the second one? Well, Hume had a different story. Hume said that the reason why you ought to keep a promise is because there is this social rule that whenever you make a promise, you ought to keep it. And the reason why we ought to take such a social rule seriously and conform to it is because having that rule has very beneficial consequences in society. It gives us all an important tool for coordinating our behaviour with other people. And so once we have this tool, we ought not to damage the tool by undermining confidence in promises by not keeping them. But the problem with that, again, is you have cases where breaching a promise won't damage the tool where people's confidence in promises in general won't be undermined just because I don't keep my promise. Perhaps people don't trust me anyway and have forgotten about the promise or whatever it might be. But still, most people say, oh, I ought to keep my promise, even if I wouldn't be damaging the institution of promising by not keeping it. So you've eliminated the two classic justifications yes. of promising. Yeah. What's left? Well, my view goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is that obligation has a value of its own. And when something matters to people, like obligation, it also matters to people to have the power to control that kind of thing. And that's what promising gives you. It keeps you the power to control your own obligations and the obligations of other people. Now, we've been talking earlier about how obligation matters to people, how they can value obligation in the context of friendship, for instance. Now, the thing about promising is it needn't involve friends or it can involve perfect strangers. What I want to say is this, that obligation can matter to people. And when something matters to people, when it matters to people who's obliged to do what, it also matters to people whether they can control that. People like to control things that matter to them. And what promising does is it gives you the power to control who's obliged to do what. It gives you the power to control whether someone else is obliged to turn up to the bus stop at a certain time or to control whether you're obliged to turn up to the bus stop at a certain time. So if it's right to think obligation matters to people for its own sake and not just because of its further consequences, then this power to change obligation should also matter to people. And it's because that power is valuable that I think you ought to respect obligations, even in cases where it isn't very important to be able to predict what other people do. The power that you're talking about lies with the person to whom a promise has been made. That's right, yeah. So the power that I have over you when you've made a promise to me is the power to enforce that promise, or if you don't fulfil it, to leave you feeling guilty. Yes. And it's also the power to release you from that promise. That's right, yeah. So you have the power to determine whether I should be blamed for breaching that promise, whether I'm blameworthy for not showing up at the bus stop, for instance. And 
You might be interested in that power simply because you're interested in whether I actually show up. That's true sometimes. But sometimes people are interested in the obligation for its own sake. They want to be able to control the kinds of relationship they have with other people and the kinds of circumstance in which those people will be blameworthy or praiseworthy. And that's not just a matter of social coordination, of being able to predict where they'll be at four o'clock in the afternoon. Is the institution of duty and obligation something that is just local, it's a particular feature of our culture, or is it universal? I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I would very much imagine that you'll find it in every human culture. You'll find things like promising and friendship and other bonds of loyalty. But I don't know about the Martians, and they might not. David Owens, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.